series of nine programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. And here we are outside the Glucksman Art Gallery. Built on the site of the university's former tennis courts, the Glucksman is a contemporary art museum in the historic lower grounds of University College Cork. Named in honour of one of its founding donors, the American financier and philanthropist Louis Glucksman, the building was opened by President Mary McAleese on the 14th of October 2004. Designed by O'Donnell and Toomey Architects, the gallery has won numerous awards for its architecture and creative programmes. The Glucksman presents ambitious exhibitions of Irish and international art alongside a range of events and activities designed to encourage participation from all visitors, whether an art professional or first-time gallery goer. As a place of creative connections between people and disciplines, the Glucksman provides an essential link for the university with the wider world enabling public understanding of the visionary research undertaken in all four colleges and welcoming students, staff and visitors to explore, enjoy and learn about art right in the heart of the UCC campus. We spoke to William Wall. William, we're here in the Glucksman Gallery in the grounds of UCC. And at the time that you were our first guest author at Fiction at the Ferrari, you had just won, I recall, the Drew Hines Prize. And I think you were the first European writer to, yeah. to win that award. Yeah. Um, what book was that award for? Uh, that was for a collection of stories uh, called The Islands, which was, those stories were taken from what eventually became my novel Grace's Day. And it's a kind of a peculiar hybrid because it was written originally as a novel, although with the idea of stories, individual stories in mind as well. Uh, so it's kind of um, proof really that the writing of stories and the writing of novels are, need not anyway be all that different, that it, the language is very similar. Can you talk a little bit about how your own college life here and the memories of that fed into that story? Yeah, I, I had a flat on um, Connacht Avenue at the time, and uh, at the time when the story began, I suppose I should say, really. And uh, college really was kind of, a, like most people really, a huge part of kind of an opening up of my life that having grown up in a, a little village in East Cork and, uh, with a, you know, an interesting, an interest in, in, in reading, obviously, in books and everything like that. But then to be forced to read stuff that you just wouldn't read uh, was a hugely important kind of um, process of self-discovery for me. And it fed into, into my writing uh, in a way, really, that um, I could never have been an academic, uh, never had any real interest in academia, to be honest. Uh, whatever I did, it had to be about writing. I wanted to be a writer from much, much earlier. And so it was kind of, uh, whether I knew it or not, and I think I probably did know it, harvesting ideas all through my college years, harvesting characters and uh, kind of ways of, of thinking and talking and so on. And so really, uh, UCC 
had a, a very, very profound, and a lot of the reading that I did at the time, especially reading that was not prescribed, um, you know, played into into my later writing and in, into my attitude to to um, to writing. I would think, for example, I started reading um, existentialist novels in my in my first year in college here, and I still think that that kind of sense of impending doom and gloom has marked my writing ever since, uh, and something that I'm only able to shake, uh, to shake, you know. And Bill. You chose to uh, do your reading first in the Glucksman Gallery, and I wonder if you could tell us why you chose this location. Well, I, I met my wife in UCC uh, in the queue for what was known as the Campus Kitchen Disco. <laughs> and um, I, I us just to annoy her, I usually say that I won her in a bet. Uh, because um, my, myself and my best friend were standing behind her and her best friend in the queue and we got talking to them and we got separated then and he placed a bet with me that he'd get to dance with her first and he lost. So <laughs> um, I chose the Glucksman because we spent a lot of time down here in the what used to be the gardens, uh, what are still the gardens really I suppose, uh, the lower gardens in UCC and uh, um, rather than trying to do the recording outside in the actual garden, I, I thought it would be nice to do it in the, the shelter here. But it's also a beautiful space, and it's a space of art, but it's also a space of gathering and, you know, conviviality and so on. And a lot of things that kind of I can remember from UCC either linked to the gardens or linked to this building itself, uh, readings and openings and various other things like that. So um, I also think it was a huge um, uh, thing for UCC to have this magnificent building and the collections that it, it takes. You spent time as a student in UCC and then in your more recently uh, you ended up back here for a while, Bill, didn't you? I did. I was invited to do a PhD by what's called prior publication, uh, which essentially means that your, uh, in my case, my, my books counted as the body of my thesis. And uh, I had to write um, uh, a linking essay, which kind of drew out themes and talked about my writing process and so on like that. And um, I did it under Aver Walsh, who is a fantastic supervisor. And um, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm proud of having done it, um, but uh, that's what it was. Sounds fantastic. And you did it in one year? Oh my <laughs> God, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, I'm the, I'm the last doctor in our family. My two sons have a doctorate, my wife has a doctorate. So I know exactly what a PhD takes. And therefore I have to say, um, you know, doing it by prior publication is definitely the easiest way of doing it. You only have to write four or five books first, you know. Yeah, we'll have to remember this, Danielle, because I've been joking with Liz, your wife, that it took her three years and uh, you just skipped in there and out in a year. It's fantastic and congratulations. Thank you. Am I right in thinking that you taught English for many years? Do you have any plans to teach again, to teach creative writing perhaps? Absolutely not, no. Um, I, I spent 25 years or so teaching 
and uh, I've had enough of it. Uh, I enjoyed teaching, I very much enjoyed the interaction with the, the young brains, you know, but um, uh, I've had enough of it. I don't think I can go back to it. And as regards creative writing, I don't feel I have anything to teach anybody because I myself haven't a clue how I do it and I don't know where the ideas come from. So I, I kind of really don't know uh, what, I could, what I could transfer in, in a teaching process to anybody else. It's my privilege to live in a city which is full of creativity and full of writing. It's been great. We're particularly pleased, Bill, that you agreed to take part in our radio programme because, as a matter of fact, you were our very first guest author at Fiction at the Friary in January uh, 2017 and such a sport to us then and always. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So I'm William Wall, I'm recording here in the Glucksman and UCC and I'm going to read a story called In Xanadu from my first collection of short fiction called No Paradiso. We slept fitfully then, uncertain of the slipshod hills, of winking streets and bloody crosses, the streams that wound through everything, throwing that uncertain light in the eyes, on the buildings, as far as the sky even. And when we did not sleep, we lived along the streets in the bars, in the groves of the college. Staying awake was not difficult. There were nightclubs, dances, flats and bedsits, even glorious starry winter nights. There was walking the hills where the streets wound in and out like water, and there was talk. Everyone talked about music. Some talked philosophy or poetry or science. All of it, once the light was gone, in the grey pain of the next day, seemed utterly banal, utterly false. But we were convinced that memory played tricks. We were convinced that no one remembered exactly what had happened, that we had said things that surprised even ourselves with their beauty, ideas that ravished like Cinderella's, but which had now fled without leaving even a slipper, or had unaccountably transformed themselves into ugly sisters. It all changed when Nula died. It was during our last term, just before exams. She was coming up to college from her sister's house, where baby number four had just been christened, when an articulated lorry pulled out across the road. The mini was too big to slip underneath, and when the roof came off, it took the top of Nula's head with it. Even though there are no endings, really, even though each story is a continuum out of which we pluck what we call stories, which our own skill tricks us into thinking complete and self-sufficient, even though there is only one full stop. Nevertheless, that death was a terminus at which all of us stopped and from which we set out again later in different directions. We never looked back. I met Kevin as I climbed up the hill from jail gate. He was sitting propped against the steel bars of the college, his coat raised around his ears, his head hanging. I could see, even before I recognised him, that he was drunk. Did you hear what I did? He was looking up at me. I wondered if he could see who I was. Kevin! Jesus, man, he said. I helped him up, and he leaned heavily on me. Where was he going? Man, he said, I haven't a fucking clue. Know what I mean? Your place or mine? He laughed loudly and repeated it several times. Your place or mine? It wasn't far to my flat. On the way, he argued with me about directions, insisting that I lived somewhere else. 
As we passed a garden with blackened hydrangeas bulging out through the fence, he leaned over and vomited noisily. When that was finished, he threw his head back and said, That's better anyway. I felt I had to get that off my chest. You know what they say, drink it down, it'll do you good, and get it up, you'll feel better. You said you were after doing something. Shit, don't remind me. He got up again, and we struggled on. As he walked, he told me, It was Dawkins' lecture, you know, the influence of Beowulf on Einstein's theory of relativity or something. Jesus, I hate Anglo-Saxon. Anyway, he started off with the slides again. The whole place in darkness at the flick of a switch, presto-like. A moment of awed silence, then the Rothwell Cross. What else? Every bloody lecture has a slideshow, and every slideshow starts off with the Rothwell Cross. Anyway, the spirit moved me for once. As soon as I saw the Rothwell Cross and all the nuns with their pens poised, I couldn't stand it anymore. So I shouted, I quote, an obscenity at the darkness. Only... Dawkins was standing just behind me with the fucking remote control button. What obscenity? I just said fuck the Rothwell Cross, or words to that effect. What did he say? He threw me out. Blasphemy, etc. The nuns were very upset, apparently, and were demanding an apology. Did he say that? Or words to that effect. What did you say? He went through an elaborate, comical routine in which he pointed at himself and mouthed the words, Who? Me? his face all injured innocence. Then he joined his hands in front and spoke in a soft, even voice. I said the nuns were entitled to be upset. I said it was a despicable thing to do, but that I was under a lot of strain at the moment, and I hoped they would accept my apology in the spirit in which it was intended. So, so I'm only barred until next week. The nuns took a maternal interest in me and recommended a good prayer group, so I went off and got pissed out of my mind. A perfectly natural reaction. By now we had reached my flat. He threw himself down on the couch and began to snore almost immediately. I went to bed myself. In those days my sleep was untroubled and I slept until the alarm. Before I left to go over to a lecture, I looked in and saw that he was sleeping like a baby. The flat reeked of stale beer and other people's clothes. Later he was awake. I fried sausages and eggs and bread and we ate it listening to the one o'clock news. The price of beef, I remember, was going through the floor. Now I cannot remember why, but I remember we smiled knowingly. Beef is not going through the floor around here, we were saying. Students do not come in for such luxuries. We spoke for some time about food. Eventually, Kevin asked me if I knew Nula, but everybody knew Nula. He said he had a date with her, and did I think she'd go far? Everyone knew Nula was easy. She would sleep anywhere for anything. There were dozens of people who boasted of having slept with her. The best thing about Nula, he told me, is she has a car. Then we spoke about campus politics. We were agreed that the new union president was a cretin. His campaign had been one of carefully printed literature and well-organised public meetings. He was Ogrefina Foyle. Trust FF to organise it down to the last detail. We had distributed carelessly typed pamphlets for a left-wing candidate who had secured about 6% of the vote but retained the undying respect of the student body. So when are you meeting Nula? I asked. In about an hour. Here. Here? How does she know you're here? Jesus, you were waiting for me last night. He grinned. Well, he said, I could also just fall asleep on the road. I did it before, if you didn't come along. 
He had cleared the table and aired the room and generally made himself useful around, so I didn't object. Now, while I transcribed notes I had borrowed, he washed the ware. The clatter of dishes and the smell of soapy water reminded me of home. I could almost sense my mother standing behind me, facing out through the deep windows at the snowdrops or the geraniums she husbanded through the winter. Soon Nuala came. She was one of the college beauties with an unusual face that looked dull in repose but was attractively mobile. When she smiled it seemed to go into shards like glass or facets of a kaleidoscope. She had a raucous voice and a fund of obscene stories. They left together in her car and after they were gone I settled down to serious study. When they came back I heard their voices calling me through the letterbox. They were outside in the rain and I could hear the engine of the car running and wipers dragging across the screen. I wanted to pretend I heard nothing, but they just kept calling me, so in the end I had to let them in to drip around the floors. Nuala switched off the engine and left the car parked where it was, half in, half out of the road. They were both drunk and possibly high as well, and in high spirits. They had brought a six-pack and a bottle of cheap wine with them. Irondel, I remember it was called, a two-litre bottle. Nuala told jokes and recited verbatim snatches from Annie Hall. Kevin recited a poem. We put on Leonard Cohen and listened while we drank. Nuala said Chelsea Hotel always reminded her of herself, the bit about getting away and talking so wild and so free. She felt she had talked too much and we both said no, that it was great to meet someone who talked as much as ourselves. So then she stood up and sang Chelsea Hotel number two, standing with her hands by her sides, her head thrown back in the attitude of a folk singer. She sang it like a ballad, a song of bitterness and pain, a little too fast maybe, but raw and intense. When she was finished, she slid in beside the table and drank what was left in her glass with a flourish. But we didn't feel like clapping. For a time we could think of nothing to say. Nuala began to cry quietly, cradling the glass in two hands. She said we were nice boys and why was it that she couldn't always go out with nice boys? Kevin said he wasn't sure he liked the idea. Then they danced for a while and I sat on the floor. My head was swimming, but I was aware that something was out of control, like the governor had failed on some rickety machine. She was frightening and lovable, fragile and dangerous. She was intoxicating. I stayed on the floor when Nuala and Kevin moved to the couch. I think I may have passed out or drifted into sleep because when I woke, they were making love. I sat there for a moment watching them, mind clarified by unconsciousness, and saw the languid movements that are the language of the body, the small silent lock that a man and a woman turn that brings intimacy and pain, safety and rejection. It seemed to me for an instant that I was watching the coupling of mythical creatures, a Paris and Helen, a Deirdre and Nisha. Then the mood passed and I felt the sour wine on my tongue, acid tumbling in my gut. It was five o'clock on a winter's morning and I was cold. I got up and opened the curtains and the lights had gone out all over the city. Houses were shut down. Nothing moved except the couple on the couch behind me in their own lightless circle. I left quietly and went to bed. Later I heard Kevin in the toilet and later still I heard Nuala singing in the kitchen. I remember thinking they were here to stay 
and I would have to make sure my landlord didn't find out. Thinking of my landlord, I drifted into an uneven sleep in which I returned periodically to near waking to hear the strange sound of someone else's mourning. It's an immense pleasure to introduce uh, Elizabeth Rosemary to you all this afternoon. Um, Elizabeth writes novels for children and young adults, as well as short fiction and personal essays. Um, her first book was The Book of Learning, Nine Lives Trilogy One, um, which was shortlisted for the Irish Literary Association Awards and the Irish Book Awards, and became the 2016 Dublin UNESCO Citywide Read for Children. It has also been listed as uh, on the secondary school list of book recommendations. Um, following on from that, she published the Book of Shadows, which is the uh, second book in the trilogy, and the Book of Revenge, uh, which is the third book in the trilogy. She's also published Caramel Hearts, and she's uh, published many other pieces of short fiction and essays uh, across Ireland, the UK, US and Australia. She's always a pleasure to listen to, so um, please give a big hand for Elizabeth. Okay, so um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read two different pieces. Um, one from Caramel Hearts, which is the Anatol book, and I'm going to read um, a sample as well from the book alone so that people get a, a feel for the different age groups. So I'm going to start from um, Caramel Hearts, and the bit I'm reading is from the prologue, and it's right at the beginning of the book before the main story starts. So in the book, this is the adult fiction, the main character, um, Liv, is 14, but in this, um, in this section, she's eight. So I'm going to read from this. And it's a day trip out with her family to um, Whitby. Mam lifts her arms high into the air and nearly upturns the chips. We scramble through the deep, powdery sand to rescue our lunch. Mum's quick. She turns tail and runs towards the cave, and we follow in hot pursuit, laughing and shrieking. But by the time we reach the cave, Mum's mood has changed. She stares blankly at us as we catch up, panting. The air is flat and damp. The wild, free winds are left outside. Mum, do you want to rest for a while? asks Hattie. I want Max, says Mum, bursting into tears. We sit next to her, close enough for her to know we're there, but not close enough to touch. And we wait. To pass the time, I gather Hattie's treacle-coloured locks and I plait them into seahorse tails, and I think, please don't let Mum get angry. Mum stops crying and turns her soggy face towards us. Her fringe sticks to her forehead and swirls. If your dad was here, I wouldn't get these moves. I stop plaiting, draw up my knees, and rest my chin on them. If you hadn't driven him away, Liv, everything would be fine. Sorry, Mum, I say. They split up when I was two, six years ago. If only you'd been a better baby, if you hadn't scribbled on the walls or thrown your food bowls. I squash my chin onto my knees as hard as I can, trying to make a bruise. 
A bruise helps to take your mind off things. And when you poke it, all you think about is the pain. And you forget the bad stuff you've done, like driving your dad away. Hattie never threw her food balls. Max didn't leave when there was just me and Hattie. I did other naughty stuff though, Mum says Hattie in a shaky voice. But it's as though Mum hasn't heard her at all. He always were a naughty child, Liv. He couldn't cope with it. He had to leave. Sorry, Mum. I feel the soft touch of Harriet's fingers searching out my own, followed by a warm, gentle squeeze. It's, I know it's meant to mean don't listen, but I can't help it. You'll always be that way, I guess. You've got my blood, Liv. That's the problem. Bad blood. She shuffles closer to me, so I turn my eyes to Hattie and wait for the signal. Mum hugs into my back, whispering, Sorry, love, don't pay any attention. Don't mind me. And eventually, Hattie touches her ear. And when Mum pulls away again, she's all smiling. Who's for more chips, she says. And squealing, we all run back into the daylight. Okay, so the next sample I'm going to read. So that was Caramel Hearts, and that's for a readership of um, 12 to 15. Um, and it's a contemporary novel, and it's around addiction and um, food. And it's about a family trying to deal with addiction. So just to give a sense of um, how different it is when, uh, in terms of style when I'm writing for younger readers. So this one um, is for 8 to 12-year-olds. And I'm going to read a little bit from chapter 4 from the Book of Learning. And this one's an adventure story, so this one's set in Ireland. Um, it's around the idea of reincarnation. So at this point in the story, the character has been brought to Dublin by a guy called Judge Ambrose, who she hates. And she's about to meet an aunt that she didn't know existed. So she's never been to Dublin before, and she's never met her aunt. And the only other thing you need to know is she has a best friend with her, and that is a pet rat called Winston. The imposing building resembled an angry face. Only two of the eight windows glowed with an amber light, flickering in the downpour like blinking eyes. Ebony had never seen a house so big. A willowy figure glided past one of the dimly lit windows. Could that be my aunt? She wondered. Wind and rain swirled around Ebony's heavy coat, sneaking up the hem of her jeans. Bells chimed somewhere nearby as a clock struck ten. She glanced into the night. Oh, at least I have you with me, she said, as Winston shuffled in his cage. Winston puffed out his fur and settled down contentedly, but as Ebony looked back towards the building, she spotted a shadow creeping along the railings. She glanced around, but she was alone in the street. Still, the shadow grew. And Ebony stared at it, mesmerised. Her breath quickened. It's okay, Winston. It's just our imagination. Frozen to the spot in his cage, Winston stayed silent. His whiskers quivered and his tail pointed straight. The shadow grew until it became human-shaped and covered Ebony's arm. She turned around. A rough-looking man stared down at her from inside a black hood. He looked like he hadn't washed or shaved in weeks, and his eyes bulged red raw and bloodshot. His coat was covered in stains, and under the streetlights, his skin had a bluish tinge. You've returned, he said, reaching for Ebony's coat sleeve, and she took a step back to avoid his hand. 
Winston rushed from one end of the cage to the other, and Ebony tightened her grip so she wouldn't drop it. I'm sorry, do I know you? It's me, Icarus, Icarus Bean. You must have made his mistake, she said, her voice firmer and louder this time. She glanced into the night. How long did it take somebody to park a car? She could mow their fishing boat much quicker back home in West Cork. No mistake, I've been waiting for you. The man called Icarus pulled down his hood. His hair was matted, sticking out like twigs, and his eyes gleamed and his thin lips looked pale and mean in the black night. Ebony took another step back and tried to hide the fact that she was trembling. I I Icarus Bean, she stammered. As soon as she said his name, a shudder of fear prickled her bones. I'm certain we've never met. This is my first time in Dublin. You do know me, he insisted. Winston ran to the back of the cage and buried into the straw, leaving just his tail sticking out, and Ebony fought back tears for the, for the umpteenth time that day. Stay back, you're scaring me. She immediately regretted her words. She knew that animals attacked when they sensed you were scared, and were people just animals after all? Icarus Bean looked into Ebony's eyes. You must try to remember. The man was clearly insane. As he stepped towards her, Ebony backed up till she was wedged between him and a lamppost and there was no escape. He leaned in and she closed her eyes. Somewhere nearby, a car door slammed. Ebony's eyes shot open and Icarus jumped. He looked towards the sound with nervous eyes and quickly backed away. This won't be the last you see of me, he said. I can promise you that. Elizabeth, it's such a joy to have you here and to meet you again. I absolutely love Winston the Rat. I really, I never thought I'd like a rat so much. But can I ask you, um, first of all, um, uh, I, I love the trilogy. I love Caramel Hearts. I know you also write other short stories and you've got other projects on the go. But it seems to me that you're very attracted to writing stories for young adults. And can I ask you um, why you think that might be? You know, I've never been asked that before. Ooh. Yeah, uh, and that's actually a really good question. Um, I think the first love is coming from loving children's books. Um, and I had such a deep love of reading when I was young. And I remember how amazing that felt when you were just you know, up a tree or in somewhere random with a book in your own world, you know. Mm. Um, and also I grew up in foster care and, you know, had a kind of uh, very bizarre kind of childhood and books were my one stable thing. So I've always felt very, um, I don't know, safe and protected around books, but I also remember that enjoyment of what it was like to read a book. And I never grew out of reading children's books, so even as I grew up, um, I always read children's fiction. I just thought oh, it was always really good. You know, um, some people like make like a crime book, you know, as their kind of, you know, a sort of lighter read or whatever. And I always uh, stuck with children's fiction. Um, and I don't necessarily set out to write for children, but it's the story that comes and, you know, ends up being, quite often ends up being for children or for young people. Uh, I think it's, uh, I like getting in front of young audiences. Um, I love that because you get so much back from the audience. 
Uh, if you perform part of your book, um, you know, I've had kids running up to me with alternative book covers or alternative endings because they've read my book and they've decided they could do it better. Just <laughs> always nice to know. Um, <laughs> but they get really involved. Um, and I really think if you can foster reading when someone's a young person, you know, they'll go back to it when they're older. And it's a real kind of gift for life. So partly my love of reading and also um, a love of engagement with young people. Thanks so much. That makes so much sense. And um, I think you also um, qualified as a teacher. You taught in, uh, in the UK, didn't you, before you came to Ireland? And you also uh, were involved in professional poker playing, <laughs> which is fascinating. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm hoping that one day you'll write a memoir because I know there, uh, from the 60 interesting facts uh, about Elizabeth Rose Murray that she has on her website, um, it conjures up an awful lot of other stories. <laughs> but can I ask you just one more question about um, uh, your uh, transition from England to Ireland? Do you feel that Ireland has been a place where you're have been able to nurture your literary career and um, has it been good for you and do you intend to stay here? <laughs> well, I've been in Ireland now for 12 years. I lived in Dublin for two and um, I lived in, I've lived in West Cork for 10 and I'm married to an Irishman so um, I'm definitely here to yeah, stay. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. um, the transition was actually via other countries so I left England, um, I was teaching and I left England to pursue a career in poker, which is a sentence I never thought I'd say. Um, <laughs> and I was living in, a, I was actually moved from Spain to Ireland, and I was trying to resist it. I, the whole, you know, I don't feel an affinity with where I'm from at all, so I'm not a big uh, fan of where I grew up in the UK. And um, I was really quite scared. I nearly didn't come to Ireland. I was trying to go to Canada because I thought it might be similar. Um, just the kind of fracturedness and the, you know, there's not really storytelling. When I moved to Ireland, um, straight away in Dublin, the taxi driver had stories to tell. And, you know, I was trying to buy milk and it was taking me nearly 20 minutes. So I had to prize the milk out of her hand because she had to tell me stories. And I just thought, oh, this is my kind of place. Um, and it wasn't until I'd been writing my whole life. And when I was living in Spain and the internet happened properly, you know, so I could start getting... Um, things out there and published. But before that, I'd been completely cut off from any kind of English-speaking um, literary world. So that was where it started. But when I moved to Ireland, it was the first time I met real writers and other people who wanted to be actual writers. I, did, I didn't know I could be a writer until I moved to Ireland. Um, so that was a real push. And then the first story that came to me that I felt was would be good enough to try and get published um, was the Book of Learning. And that's why I based it between Dublin and West Cork, because um, Ireland, one, the literary community is so friendly and so supportive, uh, but if it wasn't for here and the love of the arts and the love of storytelling, um, I'd have probably still been playing poker and not have a book at all. So Ireland was really instrumental in me becoming a writer. I thought, I thought writers lived in castles. I live in a mobile home. <laughs> So they don't live in castles, so this one doesn't anyway. But it never felt like a real thing, you know, and I'd never met an author. And um, I think I always felt like there were kind of some alternative higher beings or something. Now I'm a writer, that sounds lofty. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it wasn't until I moved to Ireland that I even thought I could possibly even have a shot at being a writer. 
That is fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mary O'Connell, always go to the source. Down as usual to plug out the multi-mic. Dead as a doornail. No usual red and green flashing light after a whole night's charging. This was my lifeline to good hearing. By pointing it to the source of sound, it increased the volume and clarity of my hearing aids. Now what to do? I consulted the manual, carried out some preliminary checks. Nothing. The thought of having to travel all the way to Black Rock to get it seen to filled me with dread. That would mean half a day lost. Up to now, the little booster had been mainlining from the electric plug as good as gold. Luckily, I checked the cable leading to the plug and saw to my amazement that half the plug had come adrift. No wonder the little gizmo couldn't charge. It had no juice. With difficulty, I prized the remaining part of the plug out of the socket. Now to connect it to its separated sibling. As I pushed and pummeled to unite the pair, I felt like an angry mother trying to revert the operation that separated her conjoined twins. After what seemed an age, the two parts of the plug gelled. A different socket was found, and hey presto, the gizmo was sucking diesel, or should I say, electricity. <laughs> Moral of the story, when an object, or indeed a human being, behaves erratically, it's probably best to try and find the root of the problem. Maybe they had a bad night, or had to start the day without a proper breakfast to sustain them for the task ahead. My name is Deirdre Crowley, and this is my story, Stung by Summer. Vivian was furious. She had wanted to be the first girl Michael had kissed, so he'd always remember her, even when he was old. Vivian was thinking Michael was the wrong candidate for the job. She walked off in a sulk. Michael didn't know what to do. He shouted, sorry, after her. He waited until he saw her disappear on the Strand Road, near the house she was staying in. Walking home, he watched the moon shed silver, shimmery lines on the water. They seemed to be moving with him, following him. He wondered if he'd ever know what love really was. Girls were so different to boys. He felt sad that he might never know what all the fuss was about. Maybe his father could have helped him if only he had been around. The next day he had promised to cut the grass for Mr Healy. His mother had said her son was fit and able for any work he had. 
Mr Healy owned the holiday home near the Strand Church. The garden at the front and back had turned into wild meadow. Mr Healy was friendly when he answered the door. Ah, Michael, he said, two foot taller than last summer. What does your mother feed you? Michael seemed to be looking down at him for the first time. It felt strange to be bigger than someone who always seemed so big in every way. Mr Healy said, you're a great lad, Michael, like he meant it. They got to work cutting down the tiny meadow with the sky and clippers. The battered lawnmower coughed, sounding like it might give up at any moment. After hours of July sun, working together easily, they managed to put shape on the garden at last. Butterflies and bees fled as shorn grass emerged again, like a well-groomed man looking swept and clean after a scruffy winter. Leaning on the garden wall, they guzzled chilled lemonade and devoured the egg sandwiches that Mrs Healy gave them. Her small children stared up at Michael like he was a giant. The oldest boy begged him to play football with them. Still good at the maths, Michael, Mr Healy said enthusiastically. Your mother says you're going for accountancy next year in college. She says you'll even get the scholarship. Mrs Healy chimed in, well done Michael, always so clever. He felt himself blushing, thinking that Mrs Healy's smile was so nice. Maybe her bright red lipstick made it nicer. No wonder Mr Healy looked so happy. He wanted to ask his mother why she never wore lipstick. He would ask her that evening if she had worn it when his father had been around. He wanted to ask her if she ever thought about him anymore. He wanted to know everything. He thought about explaining to Mr and Mrs Healy how he found numbers exciting and easy, how it was all about pattern and shape, but he said nothing because he thought it might sound like he was boasting. He didn't think finding things easy meant he was talented. His teachers told him he was a natural for numbers. They used the word exceptional about him to his mother. His mother was pleased when she heard he had got on so well with Mr Healy. For dinner that evening they shared a small cooked chicken with spring onions and chopped up potatoes from the day before. The raspberries she had brought home were warm and mushy. Michael spooned them into his mouth enthusiastically. Tiny dribbles of red juice staining his t-shirt. Sitting opposite him, she said she loved that he was turning out to be so fine. She said so fine again with a shake in her voice. Before he left, he hugged her near the sink. From his back pocket, he pulled out the rolled up notes Mr Healy had given him, saying, that's for you, ma, next summer. I'll do every garden in the town so you can sunbathe all day. They both laughed at the thought of her reclining on a striped deck chair, like the old ladies under Sam hats who sat outside the B&Bs in summer, just watching the world go by. It was late evening when he walked up the strand, his body sore from gardening. He had brought his togs and quickly undressed for a swim. He hoped he'd see her, Maybe she'd be sitting on the wall, pretending to watch the waves. He sometimes did that. It was his best time for thinking about things that mattered.
Fiction at the Friary and on Campus was presented by Madeleine Darcy and Danielle McLaughlin. Location introductions by J.P. Quinn. Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.